Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 12, and I want to read to you the last three verses, Romans 12 and verses 19 to 21. So let's hear God's word, and these verses will be the verses that we'll be spending the rest of our evening together considering. Romans 12 and verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So reads the word of God. Some preachers are guilty of repeating themselves. Sometimes this is necessary, such as when an American pastor was preaching on a very hot August Monday in a very stuffy church in Aberystwyth. As he was preaching, he looked out on the congregation and he saw that every single one of them was asleep. So he simply repeated one sentence again and again and again. And slowly everybody woke up. And finally he was able to say, Ah, you're with me again now. And he carried on. Repeating himself like that got people's attention and woke them up from their slumbers. How do I know that? Well, I was one of the sleeping congregation on that occasion. So I do have great sympathy with you on hot days. Other preachers repeat themselves unnecessarily. One of the most helpful comments I received early in ministry was from a retired pastor who said to me after a service, you know, you don't have to repeat your points four or five times. We do understand what you're saying the first time. That was very helpful. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans and he used ink and parchment and they were not cheap. We live in an age where paper is very cheap, ink is cheap, we can write on a, a computer or text and it, it doesn't really cost us anything at all. It doesn't even have to be printed out. But for the Apostle Paul to write a letter meant he had to purchase parchment and ink. That meant that he never wasted any words. In fact, the whole of the letter to the Romans and all his other letters, but particularly the letter to the Romans, are 16 chapters and those chapters are really tight. The, the chapters sort of condense everything that he wants to say. That is why it is possible to spend a long time just reading one verse and you discover so much in the verse because there's so much packed into it. First of all, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit guided Paul in all the words that he was using. But also because Paul was careful. He made sure that every single word counted. So when he repeats himself, 
it's always got to be for a good reason, hasn't it? And as we come to the end of Romans chapter 12, we have a few verses here that we've been looking at for a while now. But since verse 14, we see that Paul keeps on repeating essentially the same thing. So in verse 14, verse 17, verse 18, 19, 20 and 21, he is saying the same thing. Six times in this letter, six times in this little chapter, he says the same thing in some form or another. What is it that he's saying? Well, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And we say, well, thank you, Paul, I've got that. But he comes back to it again, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Well, thank you, Paul. Yeah, we, we, we get what you're saying. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And now we come to verse 19, the same thing. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. And then verse 20, he, he chooses... Uh, a quote from the book of Proverbs and explains it. The enemy's hungry, well, give him some food. He's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then he, he caps it all in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is it that Paul is, is saying to us and why does he repeat himself? Well, what he's saying is that Christian, Christian men and women, young and old, who respond to wrongs done against them and who respond to those who are hurting them that they must respond by not wanting revenge not wanting to get even but rather they must respond by blessing and peace that's what he's saying someone wrongs you as a Christian someone even hurts you as a Christian what do you do? Well, the natural sinful instinct is to want to get your own back, to get some sort of revenge, to make sure that that person suffers in the way that you have suffered. They shouldn't do it, and they need to learn the lesson. Well, that might be the natural response, but the Apostle Paul is saying that isn't the Christian response. The Christian must live in a different way and must respond with blessing and with peace. When Christians are cursed, they will bless, verse 14. When they receive evil, they will repay with kindness, verse 17. When they meet trouble and friction, they will respond in a peaceful way, seeking to keep peace if they possibly can, verse 18. And now in verses 19 to 21, we have a similar statement. So you say, well, is there anything new in these verses? The answer is yes, there is something new. The new aspect is this, that there's a possibility that you might be able to take revenge, that there might be a way of getting vengeance done. There may be perhaps a legal way of getting some sort of compensation for wrongs done. Or there might be a way of being able to treat your enemies with enmity and to show that you hate them. 
Well, that might be the natural way of responding to wrongs done and to hurts received. Don't we hear very often, where there is blame, there is a claim. That's what the adverts tell us. And don't you hear people say, well, don't let him get away with that. What he's done to you is terrible. Don't let him get away with it. Or someone says, well, you should take her to court for that. Get her to pay up. You've lost out so badly. And this is the natural tendency of the world. But the Christian is to respond quite differently. In verse 19, we're told that we are to leave God to deal with the repaying of wrongdoers. Presumably what the Apostle Paul means there by leave room for God's wrath and also by quoting Deuteronomy, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Presumably what Paul has in mind there is the fact that there will be a day of judgment and we must always remember that. We could take things into our own hands now. We could try to make sure that justice is done and we get revenge now. But Paul is saying, don't forget, there will be a day of judgment. There will be a day at the end of this world when all wrongs will be righted. There will be a day when God himself will be the judge of everyone. He's reminding us that nobody get away, gets away with anything in this world. Nobody does. Because there is a God who will deal with matters. He may deal with matters during this world and this lifetime. But even if he doesn't, he will deal with it on that last day of judgment. And we are to leave room for God. We are to leave room for his wrath and to leave it to him. After all, he says, it is mine to avenge. I'll deal with it. And then in verse 20, he tells us that we are to actually treat enemies with kindness and generosity. We are to meet their needs if we are able to. He quotes from the book of Proverbs, from Proverbs chapter 25. It's quite interesting the number of times that the Apostle Paul actually does quote from the book of Proverbs. He loves this book. I don't know whether you love the book of Proverbs. I hope you do. It's not a book that everybody takes to easily. And yet when you start to read it, you see just how practical a book it is. And, and Paul is saying, look, there are things in that book of Proverbs that will help you to live your life day by day. And here is one of them. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a direct quote from Proverbs chapter 25. We are to treat enemies with kindness and with generosity. And then in verse 21, he tells us we are to overcome evil with good rather than allowing evil to overcome us. That final statement in verse 21 is really the, the principle of the whole thing. What, we ha what have these last few verses actually been teaching us? Well, they've been teaching us this, that if we allow wrongs done to us and hurts received by us, if we allow them to play on our mind, they will create in us all sorts of thoughts and feelings 
of revenge and hopes for vengeance. And we will start to be eaten up with hatred and with anger. And that will result in evil thoughts and possibly in evil actions as well. That's what happens when you allow those sort of things to play on your mind. Someone has done something really bad towards you. They may have let you down. They may have double-crossed you. They, they may have uh, broken a confidence. They may have done worse than that. They may have actually hurt you in some deep emotional way. You may feel betrayed. It may be that they have physically hurt you. Now, if you allow that to play on your mind, it will then create all sorts of thoughts that will lead then to evil. And you mustn't allow that to happen. Because if you do, you will end up being overcome by evil. There is another way, Paul is saying. There's a different way of living. If we refuse to allow those thoughts to take root in our minds, but rather if we encourage kindness and generosity, we will find that good thoughts and good behavior will actually overcome that evil. We'll consider how that is possible a little bit later on. But we need to take a step back. We need to take the long view of these things. And just ask the question, why would Paul spend so much time on this point? And why does he put it right at the end of a magnificent chapter? A chapter that has dealt with so many different ways in which the Christian life has been changed. A life changed from the mind outwards because of the mercy of God that we have received in Christ Jesus. He's been taking us through all sorts of ways in which being a Christian and receiving the mercy of God and knowing the Lord Jesus as Saviour, he's told us so many ways in which that changes our lives, how our relationships change, how the way we think about one another in the church changes, how love becomes the, the bedrock of everything, how that we are to be devoted to one another and so on. He's done so much in this chapter so far. Why would he end with this? Well, because he considers it to be the most important thing of, of all. Hmm. And why does he repeat it so many times? Again, because it is so important. Why is that? Well, as I say, let's take a step back. We need to understand that there is no greater evidence of the power of the gospel than a changed life. There's no greater evidence of the power of the gospel than a changed life. Today is Pentecost Sunday. What was the greatest evidence that the Holy Spirit had come to those 120 men and women in that upper room in Jerusalem on that first day of Pentecost? It wasn't the mighty rushing wind. It wasn't the flame of fire over each of the heads. The real evidence that the Holy Spirit had come was what happened when those men and women went out into the streets of Jerusalem and also later when they went back home, many of them back up to Galilee. It was what happened when they started speaking to people and when they started living out their lives in work and family situations. 
What happened? Well, we can imagine, can't we? Someone arrives back home in Galilee. They say, well, good to see you back. What was it like down there in Jerusalem? And they start talking. Not necessarily about the things that have happened, but just about the normal everyday things. But there's something different. There's something different about the way that they're speaking. They're not using, perhaps, the sort of words that they used to use. They're not speaking about people in the way they used to speak about them. And then when they go to work, they are doing their work in a more dedicated way. They are seeking to help others. Their life has changed. And that is a powerful, powerful evidence that the Holy Spirit has come. Take Peter, for instance, in Acts chapter 2. He's standing up. He's raising his voice. And he's addressing the crowd of people in the streets of Jerusalem. What's happened to him? He's no longer the timid, fearful, weak disciple who denied the Lord Jesus three times and who ran out and wept bitterly. He's not that impetuous fisherman who's always speaking up before he even thinks. Now he is a reasoned, considered man and he's got a message and he's got courage and boldness. Again, think about Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Just a a little while after Pentecost. And where do we find them? Well, they got arrested because of a commotion in the temple area. And then they get dragged before the Jewish authorities. And this is what we read in Acts 4 verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You see, that was the evidence that the Holy Spirit had come. It was in the changed lives of the disciples. They were new people. They were men of courage. And people noted, these men have been with Jesus. It's not just men. Dorcas, in Acts chapter 9, what do we read of this wonderful lady, Dorcas? Again, a life that has been changed by the Lord Jesus. She's one of the disciples in a place called Joppa. And what do we read about Dorcas? That she was always doing good and helping the poor. That was a testimony. Everybody knew about Dorcas. What a good woman she was. She used to make things for the poor. Lydia in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, opening her home to the missionaries whom she's only just met down by the riverside. But immediately, because the Lord has opened her heart and she has come to know Jesus as her saviour, she opens her home and she says to Paul and the others, come to my house, stay with me for as long as you want to stay here. And then after Paul and Silas and the others have left, she keeps her home open and that early Philippian church meet there. The world notices these things. A changed life can never be argued against. People might argue with you 
about the things that you believe. They might not want to believe the things that you believe, and they might come up with all sorts of objections. Of course, that's fine, they will. But what they cannot argue against is a changed life. In fact, that creates interest. What has happened to this person, they say? Why is their language clean now? Why don't they join in and laugh at those dubious stories? Why don't they retaliate like they used to? Why do they seem to be going out of their way to be nice and kind? Why are they bothering with people that nobody bothers with? Surely it can't last. But it does. If it's the work of the Holy Spirit, it does last. And it will be noticed. There is no greater evidence of the power of the gospel than a changed life. And the Apostle Paul knows that. Why does he know it? Well, because of his own experience. Because there is no greater example of a changed life than Saul of Tarsus. You see, Paul, who wrote this letter to the Romans, he knew himself how powerful a changed life can be. He had seen it in Stephen as that godly man died in a flurry of rocks as he, Saul of Tarsus, held the coats of the men who hurled the stones and as he approved of the death of Stephen. But you know, Paul, Saul of Tarsus as we know him then, he could never forget the way Stephen died and the last words that Stephen uttered. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That never went out of Saul of Tarsus's mind. He said, well, what was it that drove Stephen to live like that and to die like that? What was it in him that made him refuse to retaliate, but rather to act kindly to his enemies? Why didn't Stephen pick up those rocks and start throwing them back? What was it about this man Stephen? It made a deep impression on Saul. Not immediately, of course, because immediately he went out breathing violent threats against God's people. But Saul of Tarsus was soon to discover for himself that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. By his own testimony, he tells us that he was a violent, persecuting, blasphemous man. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. He hated Christians. He was their arch enemy. The Christians in Damascus heard that Saul of Tarsus was on his way. And they knew what he had done in other towns and cities. They knew that his tactic was to go into places where Christians were meeting together, disrupt the service and drag people off to prison and even put them to death. He hated Christians and he went out of his way to destroy them. He breathed out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. But now as Paul writes this letter to the Romans, he is the most gentle and compassionate man is loving towards everyone, including his enemies. 
he seeks the good of his enemies. He goes out of his way to be kind to everyone. In one of his letters, 1 Thessalonians, he even describes himself as behaving like a nursing mother towards Christians. Is this the same man who went to Damascus to drag people off to prison, to beat them up and to put them to death? Well, in one sense, yes, it's the same man, but in another sense, no, it's a completely different man because he's been changed. Now, how do you explain that? That great transformation of life? Did he reform himself? Was it that one day he just woke up and realized what a rotter he really was? Admitted to himself that he was a bad man? You know, that's a tough thing for anyone to do. But even if you do recognize that, there's not a lot you can do to really change yourself. Perhaps did he go to some therapy session? That seems to be the, the great thing these days, isn't it? To talk through your feelings. Very often it means that you're blaming someone else for the way that you are. But if you never really take responsibility, how is anything like that ever going to help you? Did he go to some sort of anger management class so that he could learn to control himself? No, he didn't do any of that. In fact, he didn't even want to change. It wasn't in his mind and heart to change that day. As he rode up to Damascus, he fully intended to get to that city and to put a stop to this Christian nonsense. No. What changed him was Jesus Christ. He was changed. He didn't change himself. He was changed. And it was a powerful work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The powerful work of the Holy Spirit that transformed Saul into Paul the Apostle. And it is only the power of God that can do that for him and for you and for me. Paul is the greatest example of all of a changed life by the power of the gospel. So coming back then to our text, why does he do this? Why does he spend this time at the end of the chapter talking about not taking revenge, not paying back evil for evil, not becoming overcome by evil? Why does he spend so much time on it? Well, it's this, isn't it? that there is no greater change of life than overcoming evil with good. This is the thing that the world will notice. There's no greater change of life than being able to overcome evil with good, being able to meet evil with goodness. That's what the world will notice. You see, the world won't really notice your religious life. They probably won't be that bothered about your religious life. You tell them that you pray, they will say, that's fine. If that helps you, that's, that's great. You say, well, I will pray for you. Well, thanks. Most people say, thanks, yeah, I don't mind you praying for me. Anything, I'll try anything, they'll say. And if you can pray, I know you've got faith, I haven't got faith, but if, if you've got faith to pray, that's fine, they say. They're not really that bothered about our singing. In fact, we can't sing at the moment. And they're not really interested in our preaching either. They see that sort of thing a lot. Religious 
observance. And really, in the world, people just put all religions together, don't they? People who are not Christians will just put all the religions of the world together and say, well, there are religious people and some of them are Muslims and some of them are Hindus and some are Buddhists and, and some are Christians. And, and that's fine if, if that's what people want to do. But most people in our culture will say, well, I'm not any of those things. So your religious life is not really going to make any impact on anybody. But what people notice is the way you live. They notice the things you do. They watch you. And they listen to you. And if they can see an absolute consistency of life, if they can see that you behave differently to them, that you don't do the things that everybody does, you don't react the way that everybody does, now that makes people think. And especially if they knew you before you were a Christian. This is why when someone becomes a Christian, there is a while, perhaps a few months or years, when their life really does make a massive impact on their friends and family. Sometimes positive, sometimes negative. But people can't ignore it because they know that something has happened. And often they want to know what? Why are you like this? They often say, oh, it's not going to last, of course. Give you a year and then you'll be back with us again. But when you're not, they really do listen. And there's a while when someone becomes a Christian where they have many opportunities. It's not a surprise, is it, that, that when someone is converted, they really want other members of their families to, to come to church. And they invite them along. Come and meet these people that I've met. Come and listen to this. This changed my life. But even when we've been a Christian for a long time, people are still watching us. And they, they notice what you do and what you don't do. You, you might not even know that they're watching, but they know more about you than you really appreciate. They know that you're here tonight. And they know if you come every single Sunday. They know that. They know that you love other Christians. And they will also watch the way that you cope with the difficulties and the trials of life. They want to see how you cope with the really massive issues of this world. And they will watch. And they will see what happens when somebody riles you. When somebody wrongs you. They might even try and do it deliberately just to see how you're going to react. They will watch how you respond when someone hurts you. Emotionally or even physically. So how do we react? How do we respond? Well, what happens when you're passed over for promotion at work? How are you going to cope with that? When you knew that you were the better candidate, somebody else got the job, how are you going to cope with that? What happens when you're targeted by the bullies because you're a Christian? What happens when you're insulted or falsely accused of doing wrong by those who hate what we stand for. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that as a Christian, you 
react differently. You respond differently. And that is what people will notice. But even if nobody noticed it, it's still the right thing to do. Because as Paul says at the beginning of the chapter, this is all in view of God's mercy towards you. If God has treated you with great mercy and love, then who are you to treat somebody else unmercifully? You remember the story that Jesus told of the unmerciful servant, don't you? This servant who owed, in our money, millions of pounds, and he couldn't pay it. And, and the king let him go and forgave him the debt. How should he have felt at that point? He should have felt, I have received something that I don't deserve. I have been the recipient of such mercy. That, that king has treated me so well and I really didn't deserve it. And he should have gone out from that, that palace and, and thought, this is great. I'm going to love everybody now. But instead of that, he finds someone who owes him a few pounds and he really shakes him by the throat and says, you've got to pay me the last penny. Is that really the way that we should be responding? When we have received such mercy, surely we should then be merciful towards others. That's what Paul is saying at the beginning of the chapter. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't conform, he says. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't behave the way that the world behaves. Don't fit into their mold. Break the mold. Be different because you are different. Because you have the power of God within you to behave differently. Oh yes, we've got to recognize that we can't do this in our own strength. If you're not a Christian and you don't have the Holy Spirit within, you can't do this because your natural instincts will always be to do the very opposite. But with God's Holy Spirit and with his help and remaining close to him, we can behave like this. So what will we do? Well, we will leave God to deal with wrongdoers. We won't take matters into our own hands. How tempting it is to do that, isn't it? I'll find a way, we say. I'll find a way. I might bide my time, but I'll find a way and eventually I'll get my own back. And the Christian says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave it to God. He can deal with the wrongdoers. He's got his ways of dealing with wrongdoers. I don't have to do that. I don't have to get my own back. I don't have to get even. It doesn't matter. God knows. He knows what is right and he knows what is wrong. And we don't take matters into our own hands. More positively, we are kind and generous to those who hurt us. We provide for them when they're in need. Rather than treating them as they treat us. That's why we read about Elisha. And uh, that was remarkable, wasn't it? That little scene there where the enemy army 
is has has their eyes blinded for a while i mean they could obviously still see where they were going but what what it meant is that they didn't recognize where they were and so elisha was able to lead them to the capital city of israel samaria and he led them right into the gates and they were there in in samaria surrounded by israelites and by the king's army and then the king you know shall i kill them shall i kill them elisha said no come on this is not the way that you react you're you're one of god's people now you feed your enemy you give this enemy something to drink and so uh, bless him the king of israel he actually goes over the top he gives him a feast and, and the whole army of aram they they have a great feast and they drink and then off they go and that's remarkable isn't it we're kind and generous to those who would hurt us now that's going to be noticed isn't it and the what we're told here is in that way we pour burning coals on their heads what does that mean you know it can, can be tempting to think that that is part of revenge isn't it you're going to get a load of burning coals and pour it on somebody's head oh that'll teach you that's not what it means what it means is it's being used metaphorically isn't it it means that you're going to make them burn with shame for what they have done and you hope that maybe it will make them change and turn from their evil ways and that's the way that we can overcome evil with good go back to elisha the king of aram and the armies of aram wanted to destroy israel and they kept on coming with these raids every now and again this area would be raided by the arameans and then another day this area would be raided by the arameans and in that way they they had this sort of almost terror tactics really and they were trying to disrupt and they were trying to overcome israel and then there was this little scene that we've just mentioned and the army comes in and they're given some food and some drink and off they go and what's the last thing that we read well the raid stopped didn't they the raid stopped the king of aram thought well no way i'm going to ever beat them and how could i raid them now after they've treated my army so well and in that way evil was overcome by good the evil of the enemy raids was stopped because of the goodness of the king of israel in feeding and and giving the enemy some drink and obviously we're not armies we're not kings but in a smaller way perhaps even we can overcome some of the evil in this world by our good works but we must never be overcome by that evil none of this is easy but it's not meant to be is it it is not impossible though if we have the holy spirit and his power within and it begins in our minds our minds need to be transformed we need to think differently and we must remember the mercy of god towards us and all that he has done for us in jesus and we must remember jesus 
perhaps more than anyone else we must remember Jesus we've spoken about Paul and it's really helpful to have Paul as an example because he was like you and me he was a sinful man like you and me we're sinful people and so was Paul so it's good to have him as an example but of course the greatest example is the Lord Jesus the sinless son of God and listen to this in 1 Peter 1 Peter 2 and verse 23 when they hurled their insults at him he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly that's it that's what Jesus did when all this was happening to him instead of retaliating he just entrusted himself to God and said the Lord my father will deal with it and that's what we have to do as well and instead of retaliating we need to do good and be kind and that's the sort of life that will get noticed for the glory of God well may God help us to to be doers of the word and not hearers only number 150 in our hymn books speaks about the gospel great is the gospel of our glorious God where mercy met the anger of God's rod the penalty was paid and pardon bought and sinners lost at last to him were brought oh let the praises of my heart be thine for Christ has died that I may call him mine that I may sing with those who dwell above adoring praising Jesus king of love Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the work of God's own holiness. It moves my soul and causes me to long for greater joys than to the earth belong. The Spirit vindicated Christ our Lord, and angels sang with joy and sweet accord. The nations heard, a dark world flamed with light when Jesus rose in glory and in might. Oh, let the praises of my heart be thine, for Christ has died that I may call him mine, that I may sing with those who dwell above, adoring, praising Jesus, King of love. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we part for this night, we ask that we might go with your blessing. We pray that the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit would rest and abide with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen.